Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Nearly 10 years ago, one of the worst mass atrocities in recent times took place in Sri Lanka during the final days of that country's long civil war. In May 2009, tens of thousands of people were killed by Sri Lankan armed forces over the course of just a few days. The military sought to deal a final blow to an insurgent group known as the Tamil Tigers, but in the process they killed as many as 40,000 people the vast majority of whom were civilians. No one has been brought to justice for this crime against humanity, and that lack of accountability for those crimes is a key factor that my guest Kate Cronin-Furman argues is contributing to political instability in Sri Lanka today. Kate Cronin-Furman is an assistant professor of human rights in the Department of Political Science at the University of College London, In this conversation, she explains what happened during the final days of that civil war when this massacre occurred. We then discuss how the forces that carried out that crime against humanity are posing a big challenge to the political life of Sri Lanka, which entered an extremely tumultuous period this fall in which two people claimed to be prime minister at the same time. We kick off our conversation discussing the Sri Lankan civil war and its brutal end days before having a longer conversation about the ways in which the lack of accountability for those crimes are undermining the political stability of Sri Lanka today. A quick note before we begin, big thank you to everyone who has been writing me, sending me your suggestions of people to interview or topics I should cover. I know I say this a lot, but I really do love hearing from you. I put this podcast out for you. Yes, you who is listening to me right now. So if you have a suggestion about something you want me to cover, if you're just curious about something in the world and want me to explore deeper, Chances are other people feel that same way. Uh, so send me an email and let me know what's on your mind. You can use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com to reach me or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. All right. Now, here is my conversation with Professor Kate Cronin-Furman. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So for over a quarter of a century, the Sri Lankan state fought a civil war against a separatist Tamil insurgency called the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam. The kind of motivation for the conflict uh, was that 
in post-independent Sri Lanka, um, Tamils, who are about a quarter of the population, were not afforded the same rights as the Sinhalese majority. And, you know, this led to uh, repeated kind of pogroms against the Tamil community, as well as ongoing repression. Um, So in the late 1970s and early 1980s, Tamil resistance turned militant. Um, And the group that kind of moved to the forefront of the resistance, the LTTE, waged a civil war against the state. Mm. Um, And, you know, this lasted until 2009. Yeah, it was a particularly long and bloody and and brutal civil war. But um, the brutality of the civil war seemed to have come to a really profound head in May 2009. Can you describe the circumstances of the very end, the last days of this conflict? The government that came to power in 2006 in Sri Lanka swore that they were going to end this long civil war um, and launched a particularly coordinated um, and massive ground assault on the LTT, uh, which which had been holding territory in northeast Sri Lanka. Um, and By late 2008, they had pushed all the way up um, into northeastern Sri Lanka and were driving the LTT and all of the Tamil civilians that lived in that area um, out towards the coast. Um, And what happened in the final four months of the war uh, was that this population of more than 300,000 civilians eventually got compressed um, into this very small area, um, you know, and you know, people were obviously wasn't the the entire three hundred thousand group that ended up there at the end. But you know, when we when we talk about mass atrocities at the end of Sri Lanka's civil war, what we're talking about um, is something that happened in May of two thousand nine. And essentially, what the, you had this large number of of civilians in which there are probably some militant fighters mixed, but basically trapped in a pretty small area along a beach, and they were basically sort of sitting ducks. And 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 there was like this kind of free fire zone, it seemed, in which the Sri Lankan military uh, just sort of attacked this this mass of civilians that were trapped on this beach. Yeah, so this is tens of thousands of civilians trapped in an area that's about the size of New York Central Park. Um, and the Sri Lankan government had repeatedly, over the final weeks and months of the war, declared what it called no-fire zones. Um, and what has emerged uh, in the aftermath of the war is that um, government forces shelled these no-fire zones, um, shelled hospitals, shelled other civilian targets. And this is like um, well-documented. I mean, I, I, there, there have been lots and lots of reports well documented that, that, um, that discuss this kind of mass atrocity perpetrated by the Sri Lankan government. Yes, and a, a panel of experts appointed by the former Secretary General of the UN estimated that 40,000 civilians were killed um, by this illegal shelling of civilian targets. So this happened uh, nearly 10 years ago, uh, but recently there was a a new report detailing and using some interesting statistical analysis to find that there were some 500 individuals forcibly disappeared. And, you know, you you sent me a, a message over Twitter kind of highlighting this report to me, explaining its significance. And I guess my, my question to you is, you know, 
you had this situation where 400,000 people were killed, or pardon me, 40,000 people were killed. Why is this new report about the enforced disappearance of 500 people so sort of significant contemporaneously right now? Yeah. Um, so after the LTT surrendered, um, the government took custody of all of the civilians that had been left in this third no-fire zone. Um, and when you talk to people who were present in those last few days, uh, they say that they handed over their son, their husband, their daughter, their brother to the military um, and never saw them again. And there are thousands and thousands of Tamil civilians in northeastern Sri Lanka with stories like this, um, you know, stories of a loved one disappearing into military custody. Um, but the Sri Lankan government has denied committing atrocities. Um, for a long time, the, the immediate post-war regime insisted that there had actually been zero civilian casualties to this war. Hmm. Um, eventually, they did admit that some people might have died by accident. Uh, but this is a culture of absolute denial of intentional violation of human rights. And what that means is that everything about this event has been heavily contested in Sri Lankan politics for the last 10 years. So even though like, um, we as international observers you know, know that there's no doubt that there were these huge mass atrocities that occurred at the tail end of this war, this is something that's vigorously denied by, by the government? Categorically denied by the government. And, you know, what's particularly concerning is that everyday citizens believe these lies. So I've had numerous conversations with Sinhalese civilians in the South who, when pressed on this issue, will say that, for instance, the video evidence of war crimes is forged, um, that these are, you know, Tamils dressed up in Sri Lankan army uniforms pretending to commit atrocities. And anyone at the inter in the international community who, you know, speaks out about these events or, you know, says that they have evidence that they occurred um, is immediately derided and dismissed as a terrorist sympathizer. I mean, on, on that point, I recall after that UN report came out um, suggesting that 40,000 people were killed, that you know there was an effigy of Ban Ki-moon burned in the street of Colombo. Now, Ban Ki-moon is not someone who arouses like any passions in anyone he's <laughs> ever met. Most mild-mannered sort of diplomat and secretary general, yet they were burning his effigy. And that to me sort of seemed like, wow, this, this is, this is a, an intense reaction. Yeah, I mean, there, there is this perception on the ground that international interest in what happened at the end of the war is an incursion onto Sri Lanka's sovereignty, it's unfair, it's Western imperialism. Um, so there is this really kind of categorical refusal to admit that this happened. Well, okay, so 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 then what is the significance of this new report about the 500 enforced disappearance? So this is the first rigorous statistical estimate that we have about any of this. Um, so, you know, obviously, you know, we know from satellite imagery, we know from testimony of the victims that horrible things happened. Um, but that is a different kind of knowing about mass atrocities than a rigorous and transparent estimate. Um, and what's happened here is that um, the Human Rights Data Analysis Group has been able to use partial lists um, of people who went missing in military custody over this three-day period um, to assemble 
an estimate of the total population that this happened to. Um, and that's really important because, um, you know, it's not, they're not, um, they're not an advocacy group, right? They're not representatives of the victim community. Um, these are statisticians who have done this type of work across a variety of violent and post-conflict contexts and, you know, their methods and their reputation is unimpeachable. So, so they just bring actual hard evidence uh, in terms of statistical analysis around these enforced disappearances that uh, potentially, you know, throws a, a wrench in denials that these things ever occurred. Um, yeah, I mean, which is not to say that this will solve the problem of denial or mean that this is no longer contentious, but it is, it's a very different kind of evidence than, you know, the testimony of a handful of people, right? Because, you know, if you have you know, 10 individuals testifying to something horrible that happened to them, you know, and you don't want to believe what they're saying. It's very easy to kind of cast doubt on the individual story or, um, you know, for instance, suggest that what happened to that person is not representative of a broader trend. Mm -hmm. um, but what we have here is evidence of the trend. So we're speaking in the midst of this profound political roller coaster in in Sri Lanka right now. Can you, uh, I guess, number one, explain, describe for people who do not follow Sri Lankan politics, uh, what is happening, what has happened? I get, I take it since about October of 2018 till uh, about mid December of 2018, and how sort of what happened and the atrocities and the and, and how the government and others in society approaches the atrocities that occurred at the end of the civil war are, are impacting domestic politics currently. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in I've given October you, a, I've given you a big assignment there, professor. Yeah, right. Yes. Let me just explain Sri Lanka real quick. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, in late October, the president of Sri Lanka um, rather shockingly announced that he was sacking his prime minister um, and appointing his predecessor, Mahinda Rajapaksa, in his place. And it was the Rajapaksa uh, and, and his brother who uh, perpetrated these atrocities. Let's, let's remind people, right? Yeah. So, um, so Rajapaksa, Mahinda Rajapaksa was president of Sri Lanka and his brother Gotabaya uh, was in charge of the security sector um, during the kind of last phase of the civil mm -hmm. war and therefore um, they have kind of ultimate command responsibility for the atrocities that occurred. Mm -hmm. um, in 2015, uh, Rajapaksa was unexpectedly voted out of office um, in favor of uh, actually one of his former ministers who defected um, to form a coalition with an opposition party. Um, and, you know, this was a huge surprise to everyone at the time. Uh, you know, it looked like the Rajapaksas were consolidating their hold on power uh, and going to become, you know, a lifetime dictatorship. Um, and, you know, no one anticipated that they were going to be bounced from office uh, in a, you know, relatively free and fair election. Um, and one of the things that happened in the aftermath of that election is that the new president, Maithripala Sarasena, uh, repeatedly alleged that uh, Rajapaksa was a threat to his life. Hmm. Um, that, you know, if he would have lost the, elect the election, he would have been killed. Um, so, you know, it was quite a surprise um, to see him suddenly um, 
announced that that he was going to appoint Rajapaksa to be his prime minister. Because previously the prime minister was kind of like a more of a liberal uh, guy, right? Yeah. So, um, so the the coalition that took power in 2015 was was quite a big tent coalition, um, including and you know it was it was uh, an alliance with the opposition party, the UNP. Um, so you know they were kind of strange bedfellows from the beginning. Um, but uh, what's kind of really important here is that according to kind of constitutional experts from Sri Lanka, the president didn't actually have the power to sack his prime minister. Um, So this was an unlawful action on his part. Um, And what it led to uh, was, you know, weeks of uncertainty, protests, and wrangling um, among the political elites of Sri Lanka. And there's basically Um, like two governments for a while, right? There was one by the ousted prime minister and one by the uh, Rajapaksa regime. Yeah, so the ousted prime minister refused to step down. you know, on the grounds that this was an unconstitutional action and that he had not been deposed from power. Um, and at the same time, Mahinda Rajapaksa set about forming a government uh, in his supposed capacity as the new prime minister. Um, and, you know, ultimately this went to the courts to resolve. Um, you know, we saw a, a gratifying display of judicial independence Um we also saw that Mandaraja Paksa was not actually able to secure the necessary votes in parliament, uh, you know, to kind of stabilize his position. Um, and so, you know, what, what happened last week uh, was that um, Rajapaksa uh, announced his resignation and uh, the president kind of very grudgingly accepted the the kind of return of the prime minister that he tried to kick out of office. And, and so I should say we're, we're speaking at the end of, of December. So, you know, but, but right now it seems the situation is moderately stable from compared to what it was before when you had these kind of competing prime ministers. Um, but I guess I'm, I'm wondering what does the end of the civil war and the atrocities committed and perhaps the lack of, any sort of, uh, you know, um, punitive measures or, or accountability for those atrocities have to do with kind of the current political dynamics of Sri Lanka? So, um, you know, what the, the, the present instability stems from the fact that Mahinda Rajapaksa retains tremendous popularity in southern Sri Lanka among Sing- Singhalese Buddhist citizens. Uh, which is the majority and, population. Which is the majority population, um, approximately 70% of the population. Rajapaksa remains tremendously popular in the South. Uh, and that's disturbing because he is a war criminal who has not been brought to justice. Um, and, you know, most of us would not think that someone who has perpetrated mass atrocities that led to the deaths of perhaps 40,000 civilians is a fit person to be returned to high political office. Um, But because Sri Lanka has never reckoned with the crimes of the past, he remains a powerful political force um, in the country today, 10 years after these crimes were perpetrated. Um, And, you know, that's not only concerning from a moral perspective, it's also concerning on a very practical level. Um, because people are afraid of what might happen if he comes back. Um, you know, 
in the in the four years since he was displaced from office, um, the promised reforms of the new government haven't really materialized. And what that means is that the repressive apparatus is still in place. Um, and there is the very real risk that if Rajapaksa comes back to power, uh, we will see a resurgence of um, you know very serious violations of human rights that were commonplace during his regime. And he came very very close to coming back to power, uh, you know, just this past fall. He came very close to coming back to power this fall, and likely will be extremely competitive in the next round of elections. I guess so. What's the the best way forward? I mean, obviously, you know, he is a war criminal, ought to be ousted, but there's no real kind of mechanism, it seems, to to remove him uh, from the political scene. And it seems also, as you said, that um, the lack of just popular understanding or um, popular, just like general, you know, um, know how or of, of what happened at the end of the Civil War, you know, means that he does have this base of support. And frankly, you know, if his base is really hardcore nationalists, they might not even care that all these Tamils were murdered at the end of the war. Yeah. And, and that's what makes Sri Lanka such a hard case, uh, you know, for accountability and for human rights. Um, you know, Tamil, uh, you know, Tamil um, diaspora, Tamil representatives of the community on the ground have been campaigning for justice for 10 years now. Um, you know, they've asked for everything from an international criminal court prosecution, uh, you know, to, um, you know, a hybrid court sitting in Sri Lanka um, to prosecute these crimes. Um, and unfortunately, uh, you know, Sri Lanka is not a member of the International Criminal Court. It's protected on the Security Council by its patron China. Um, so the only really feasible path to justice is a domestic one. Uh, but as we've just discussed, the domestic politics of the situation make that really unlikely. Um, and until the majority population in the South comes to accept the reality of what happened at the end of the war, um, I think we'll continue to see Sri Lanka characterized by a culture of impunity. Uh, well, Kate, thank you so much for your time. As always, I always love hearing from you. I always love getting uh, messages from you. I always know it's going to result in an interesting conversation. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Kate, who uh, I feel like I've known for a long time. I don't think we've actually met in person, but she has been in the blogging world nearly as long as, as I have. And so we've uh, sort of crossed virtual paths many, many times. And I know she's been on this show before. I, as I said at the end, I always love hearing from her. She's always up to interesting, interesting work. As always, big thank you to the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute for being an ongoing supporter of the show, a content partner. Expect a, a new episode from that content partnership very soon. And if you are with an organization and want uh, your content that is relevant to other global uh, affairs nerds uh, talked about on this podcast, just uh, send me an email. We'll talk about it. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye.